our first speaker is Dave, uh, and he's going to be talking about So You Have an App Idea. Yep. Uh, quick intro. He's the founder and managing director of... Agant. Agant. Okay, so right. Universally mispronounced. Yes, I'll make sure I get that right. Uh, which is one of the UK's top app development agencies. Uh, they created the BAFTA-nominated Malcolm Tucker app, the first ever app to be nominated for a TV BAFTA, and the timeline World War II QI and Arsenal FC apps. So... I can do stuff there. Agant are also the people behind the UK Train Times app, which I know is very good myself, uh, which is one of the best-selling apps of all time. So I'll hand you over. Dave. Thank you. Hello. <clears throat> so, yes, I run uh, an app development company called Agant. We're based up in Leamington Spa, so just up the road. And these are some of the apps we've made, the Arsenal Football Club app. Apologies to um, any Arsenal fans in the audience. I actually got to go and see my hometown football club, Hull City, beat Arsenal as part of building that app. So, sorry. Um, we also did the London Midland app, the free London Midland app, which is available from all good train stations nearby. Uh, but it's based on UK train times, which is one of our um, biggest selling apps. But it wasn't always this way. Back in 2008, this was me. A scruffy web developer in a scruffy t-shirt working from a home office. Uh, it was pretty poor. Uh, but then I saw an article in the Sunday Times, this article, step right up and join the app Gold Rush. So, this sounds pretty good. Uh, I developed a few apps and within a few years, um, actually, I had my own Rolls Royce Phantom, purely from developing apps. Roll on a few more months, my own private yacht. <laughs> These are my app development, uh, app development executive friends in the background here, just sharing a glass of champagne. And very recently, in the past six months, my own private jet. <laughs> Apart from the scruffy t-shirt, this is all a lie. This is the reality. I have grown a beard, that's one improvement, but apart from that, I am not yet a smartphone millionaire. However, from the apps that we've developed and from the apps that we've sold, I have got to the point where the company is now seven people, and we're working with some pretty cool clients and um, making some really nice apps for them. So we have at least made some money from doing apps. One of the side effects of doing so is that whenever I meet anyone and tell them what I do, this is what I hear. I've got a good idea for an app. Uh, it's almost the default position. I have this good idea, they say, uh, and if you help me make it, I'll give you a share of the profits. Thank you. The problem is, not every good idea, not every idea, rather, is a good idea. And not every good idea is a good idea for an app. So uh, my aim in the next 20 minutes, half an hour, is to help work out which ones are. So firstly, is it a good idea? Secondly, if so, is it an app? And if so, how might you go about making it? Those are the three things I'll, I'll cover in the next 20, 30 minutes. Let's start with the first of those. Is it a good idea? So this was the article, Sunday Times article, uh, it was a few years ago, talked about people who developed their first apps, uh, and how new software could make designers of us all. Let's see if that claim holds up to analysis. Uh, it ran an article about one particular developer whose good idea for an app uh, was an app to tell you about um, late night drinking establishments in London. Now this seems like a pretty good idea. You know, it makes use of the fact that the phone has GPS, so it's a good fit. Uh, it's the, the app you always have with you, so you never know when you're going to want one more pint, but it could help you when you do. So it seems like a good fit. However, as we read on, 
the app took three months of research and planning. This included building a database of 350 late-night drinking establishments, which by my reckoning is four a night, which is pretty good going. Uh, and the person whose idea it was wasn't themselves a developer, so they had to get someone else to help them develop it. Uh, this apparently took about four days and cost them the low four figures to develop. And the app we hear in the story has now been downloaded a couple of thousand times at £2.39. Now, this doesn't sound too shoddy. £2.39, let's assume a couple of thousand copies, nearly five grand. That's not too bad. However, it's not £2.39 a copy. The split is actually 70-30 with Apple. And in the UK, it's not even 70-30. Once you take VAT into account, it's more like 60-40. So if we plug the real numbers in, it's more like 145 a copy times 2,000 to 3,000 pounds. Again, sounds okay, but then this took in the low four figures to develop and it took three months of research. So it's really not a goldmine for this particular developer. Like many of the good ideas that I hear, this app was simply too niche to ever really make money. It's only of use to iPhone users based in London who know the app exists, who drink in late night bars. Uh, it's a good idea and it suits the device, but it just doesn't have a big enough audience to make the money it needs to justify itself. Now in a way, ironically, this article is right. It is, and it was, a bit of a gold rush in the American prospecting sense that those who are involved from the beginning tend to do best from it, tend to make the most money from it. And then a lot of people join the rush later on, but no one really does quite so well. Uh, and it's, it's telling that the app we made that's done the best overall, the Train Times app, was launched in 2009. I don't just mean it's had longer to sell, although that helps, but it established itself when the store was uh, far less populated, when the general quality of apps was lower, uh, and it makes it mu it's much harder to establish an app now. It's not impossible, but it has to be really focused. So, to work out if an idea is a good one, there are three dimensions I tend to measure it over. These are, is it universal? Is it international? And is it a lasting idea? Now, if an app hits all three of those, that is a huge potential audience. Doesn't mean you reach them all, but it's a huge potential audience to sell to. If you're missing one of the three, uh, in this case, an app which is international and has lasting appeal, but maybe not universal appeal, that's still a fairly sizable group of people you can, you can hit who might buy your app. Uh, an example of this would be uh, an app to help you keep track of your golf score when you're playing golf. People play golf anywhere in the world. Uh, it's always relevant. People always keep score. But it hasn't got that universal appeal. It's a bit niche. If you lose two of those dimensions, then actually that audience starts to get quite small. That said, if you can hit everyone in that niche, it can still be worth it. This is essentially UK train times. Uh, our train times app, it's only of use in the UK, as the name suggests. Uh, it's only relevant to people who travel a lot by train in the UK, uh, and you know, commuters typically. But it does have lasting appeal. As I found out tonight on my way here, every train in the UK has the potential to be late. <laughs> However, if your app has niche, local, and very short-term appeal, then that's a really short, really small target audience to hit. Uh, even if you hit all of them, it's not that many people to potentially make the app worthwhile. Uh, and actually, we released one app, which is a really good example of this, the, the Malcolm Tucker app for the TV show The Thick of It. Uh, has, any, has anyone seen the TV show, The Thick of It? Do you know the, the show? Yes. Uh, this is a BBC Two sitcom uh, about the British government. 
And the lead character, called Malcolm Tucker, is the head of communications for the British government. He's Scottish, and he is spectacularly sweary. The idea of the app is that he has lost his phone, and you found it. Uh, the first thing you have to do is to enter his four-letter password. If you know the character, you can probably guess what it is. We actually accept any four-letter word in the English language, including any four-letter word in the English language. So if you put tree in there, it'll work. It's all in your brain if it's rude. Uh, but those are the ones that do work as well. And once you're in, you can read his email, listen to his voicemails, uh, look through his documents, and generally nosy around inside his phone. It launched just when the phone hacking scandal uh, broke. It was perfect timing. So this was a really, you know, really interesting idea. Fans of the show really, really liked it because it gave them a, almost a way into an episode of the show. Uh, on a whim, we put it in for a BAFTA, and um, to our amazement and delight, it got nominated. It didn't win. We were beaten by Wallace and Gromit, as the Ardman team kindly illustrated for us. <laughs> but it was still pretty good, you know, for a small company in Leamington. This was pretty cool. This was good. The problem we had was that it was very, very niche. So this was only uh, really of interest to people who were already fans of the show. There's about two million regular viewers on BBC Two for the show uh, who had an iPhone or an iPod Touch, who found out about the app, and who were willing to pay four pounds for it. Now, that's not a tiny audience, but it is limited. Crucially, this app was also really about a particular moment in British political history, uh, the transition from the Labour to the Conservative government. So it wasn't really relevant a year on or two years on. So it had a limited appeal in time as well. Now, it sold well enough to make its money back. It led to a lot of interest through the BAFTA nomination, but it wasn't a goldmine. It wasn't a huge license to print money, just because of the nature of the idea behind it. To go into a bit more detail about lasting appeal, the ideal app idea has a really long tail. This is the longest tail I could find on the internet. <laughs> Supported through repromotion and updates. Uh, that's not just saying keep updating your app, although you should. It's also about spotting app ideas that have the potential to have a long life. So the, the World War II app we launched, that's a timeline of the entire war presented by Dan Snow. That ha that's relevant in a year's time, two years' time, five years' time. The subject matter is always going to be relevant. So it has the potential to keep selling to a lot of people. It's not going to go out of date. There are two other criteria, I'd suggest, that help make for a good idea for an app. The first is something that scratches your own itch. Uh, if you make an app that's something you want yourself, Train Times is a classic. That's exactly the app I wanted. That's why I developed it back in 2008 then you'll do a much better job of it. Uh, you'll also be the target audience, so you'll know the features that are likely to, to help with it. Uh, and it, that app is a much better app because it was developed for something I wanted myself. The second, which isn't essential but really helps, is to have an idea that also has a hook so it can get attention. Sadly, launching an app is no longer a news story these days. I wish it was, but it's not. So if your app has a hook, has something new and interesting that hasn't been done before, it's something for people to write about. It's almost planning your feature list with your press release in mind. Uh, a good example of this would be the next train home feature in the Train Times app. Uh, you press that button and it will get you home no matter where you are in the UK. That's a really easy sell, a really easy pitch, and it sounds, really, it sounds quite neat. So it's a good hook to get people's attention. So those are the kind of things that can help spot an idea that is a good idea. The next question 
is it actually an app? It may sound odd, but I get this a lot. This is, we meet people who say, I'd like an app, please. And the first thing I have to do is help them work out if that is actually what they need. Do they need an app? Or is it like back in uh, 1996 on the internet that they want a website because they just want to have their company name on the internet and in Yahoo? Is it actually something they need or is it a status symbol? Sometimes it really is just they want their icon on the app store. So actually I find sometimes I'll talk people out of a project, out of working with us, because an app isn't what they need. So this next bit is to help work out which are the things that do suit being an app rather than a mobile website or something else. And there are four criteria that I apply. The first is dead time. Dead time is the time you have in your day, the spare five minutes, two minutes, sometimes even 30 seconds, where there's not much to do, you're a bit bored, but you've got your phone in your pocket. And your phone fills that time really, really well. Uh, you might be on the train, you might be on the tube, you might even be in the supermarket just waiting for your turn in the queue. And you'll load up your phone, check your email, check Twitter. These things are great for filling dead time. So to give an example of some apps that really make the most of this, that sell dead time really well, here's four good ones. Angry Birds works for dead time because each of the levels is short, completely self-contained, and multi-try. So you can always have another go when you've just got a few minutes spare. Uh, comics by Comixology is really good for this. It means you've got a comic with you for when you've got 10 minutes to read it. So it's always there when you need it. Uh, the Guardian app is good for this. It uses newsstands to download news overnight. So when you launch the app, when you've got a few minutes, it's already loaded a whole bunch of news in, so it's ready to, ready to go. And um, Instapaper, which lets you save, uh, save articles you don't have time for read, to read now for when you do. So they all make really good use of filling dead time. We used this criteria when we did the QI app. This is the app for the TV series with Stephen Fry. Although it's actually based on all of the books from Faber and Faber that accompany the series. So they approached us with four books, which are just full of facts. None of, them, none of them very interesting, just all quite interesting. And they wanted to see if these would suit being made into an app. Because of the kind of facts you get in QI, it's good time filler. It's essentially it's toilet books. You know, it's the kind of things you read when you've got a few minutes. So it suits being converted into an app. And what we did for this one was we took their four uh, main books and converted them into about 70 mini books on this QI bookshelf. The idea of this is that each of these books will take between 5 and 15 minutes to read. So we've got everything about space, everything about um, what we've got in there, bugs and so on. So they're all on a loose theme. We actually made it so that the, side, the area of each book spine is proportional to the amount of time it will take you to read, because that's how books work. Uh, so it means you pick the book that's most likely to fit the time you have available. Uh, this is the iPad version. We actually found people use this even more on iPhone because they always have it with them, so they always dip into it. And because it fits the way they already use the device, they come back to it when they've got more spare time. So they keep returning to it to fill that time. The second criteria is we know where you live. Now, location awareness is a bit of a buzzword for apps, and it's tempting to use it because it's there. Don't. But... If it can make your content more useful, then it's definitely a way to make the fact that it's on a phone, the fact that it's an app, really, really handy. Uh, good examples of this. Uh, London Tube Deluxe, which tells you, helps you plan your journey out of London from wherever you may be. Uh, the TripAdvisor Online City Guides. These are really neat. These let you download a ton of information about the city you're visiting when you have your local fast Wi-Fi connection. 
and then uses the phone's GPS when you're abroad without any internet connection to still give you all the information you need, because the GPS is free, even though the network connection isn't there. Uh, Nosy Parker, which will find you good parking spots uh, by capacity and by price, wherever you are. And the Rightmove app to help you find places nearby where you may want to live. This was the principle we applied to Next Train Home. And I think that this is a really interesting example of how location can genuinely make it more useful. The theory goes with Next Train Home, we know roughly where you live. Roughly is quite important. In my case, uh, it's Leamington Spa. I've told the app that I live in Leamington Spa because that's my nearest home train station. Then, wherever I am in the UK, if I have my phone to hand, we know roughly where the phone is too. Uh, and again, roughly is probably good enough. There aren't that many train stations. Okay, from here, it'll know I'm near the Milton Keynes one, but there aren't that many within a typical radius that will, will, will match up. So we can help get you home pretty quickly. And we have this one button down here. You hit it without asking you anything. We give you five trains home. This is from London the other day. So because we know where you are, we can be really useful without having to ask you anything. The third criteria is the app that's always there. This covers a wide range of apps, but the one thing they have in common is that they're there when you need them. It makes the most of the fact that the phone is always in your pocket. You may not know you'll need them, but they're there when you do. So good examples, the Guitar Toolkit app means I don't need to carry a, a chord book around with me anymore. I always have a chord book to hand. Uh, the IMDB app for when you're watching a thing and you think, what was he in? It's there when you need it. Uh, Memento, an excellent diary app, which is there not only when you have time to write something, but when you actually have something to write. So it's a really good example of being there with you when you need it. Uh, and the British Red Cross app, which is a really, really neatly put together first aid app. Uh, if you don't have this app, please download it, for now. Uh, please download it now. That's the, um, the iPhone app URL, but it is also available for Android. It's really neatly done, has all the content offline, Install this, one day it might save someone's life. It's really, really useful. <clears throat> the fourth criteria is ongoing use. This is apps that are just as useful on day 100 as they are on day one. They tend to be the apps that compete for the few spots on your, your, uh, your phone's home screen, the few spare spots on there. This isn't the same as lasting appeal from earlier. Lasting appeal means that people might still buy it for the first time a year from now. This means you're still using that app a year's time, two years' time from now. They're the exact opposite of a throwaway app. Now, not every app that you might expect lends itself to this. The QI app wouldn't, for example. Once you've read all that content, it's nowhere near as useful to you as it was when you first bought it. Even a tube map app isn't actually that useful. Uh, a year on, because you've kind of got used to the tube by now. You know, you've, you've used the map, you've learned from it. It's still handy, but it's not as useful as it was. Some apps that do fit this criteria, latent plug for UK train times, every train has the potential to be late, but Echofon, my Twitter client of choice, I, I'm going to be using that in a year's time, two years' time, as long as Twitter continue to allow me to. Um, TuneIn Radio Pro which has essentially replaced my analog radio. So whenever I want to listen to the radio, that's the app I go to. And uh, Pastebot, which makes the phone's uh, clipboard genuinely more useful. So these are useful, they'll be useful in a year, two years, five years from now. The big advantage that these apps have is that people rely on them. They put a lot of time into them. This means that when a friend says, 
I've just got a new phone. What app should I get for it? And they speak to you in the pub or they speak to you in the social situation. These are the ones that get recommended. Because you look at your phone and think, well, UK train times cost five quid, but it's quite handy. And it, they recommend it to people. And we actually get more sales for this app through word of mouth than any other means. We've never marketed it. It's just word of mouth. Because people rely on it. The other advantage this has for your app is it means you can actually charge more for it because it's got that word of mouth, that existing buy-in that people recommend. So it doesn't necessarily have to compete on price. It can compete on recommendation instead. So hopefully by now, we'll be pretty clear if the thing you're thinking of is a good idea and it is an app. The next question is, how do you go about making it? And the problem is, there's a lot of mobile devices out there. Phones, tablets, screen sizes, aspect ratios, pixel densities, uh, operating systems, versions of operating systems. There's so much range to target. Trying to develop an app that supports all of these is really, really hard. So my advice is, don't. Just don't bother. It won't work. Don't even try. I'll explain. One approach to this problem is to use a uh, cross-platform HTML-based development kit like PhoneGap, others are available, uh, to develop something once, essentially a mobile website wrapped up as an app, and to put it on the various app stores as a kind of hybrid app. Um, the problem with doing this is that, well, it has advantages. It lets your JavaScript access the phone's hardware, perhaps. Uh, and it's quite tempting because this can use the skills you already have. It can mean you develop something once and sell it several times. Uh, it can be a lot cheaper for you and for your clients. So it can seem a really good way to solve the problem. But it has downsides. And I'd like to illustrate those downsides with one of PhoneGap's own featured apps, the Wikipedia app. So a fairly big name for PhoneGap. This is available for iOS, Android, and uh, Playbook. This is the search screen in the Wikipedia app on iPhone and on Android. Problem is, this isn't how search works on either iOS or Android. It just feels wrong when you use it on both platforms. Another example, uh, this is the home screen, the main screen of the iOS app. This thing at the bottom down here, it looks a little bit like a tab bar, which you use for switching between different sections of an iOS app, and a bit like a, a toolbar, where you put extra options but it doesn't really work like either of those things. It's actually the wrong height to be either of those things as well. Uh, and if I tap on the uh, settings down here, for example, this happens. No transition, no animation, just appears. So uh, I've got this slightly odd thing going on here with a circle and an arrow. That doesn't appear anywhere on iOS, so I'm not sure what I'm meant to do. But if I tap the language button, this pops up. Uh, kind of a web view scro uh, scroller that lets me select different languages. It's a bit small because of the length of some of them. And I have this strange previous and next button going on, which you get in web forms, but you don't get in iOS apps. If I tap next, I go to the font size menu, but look what's happened here. The navigation bar has scrolled off the top of the screen, and that, that doesn't happen on iOS. That's, that's wrong. That really is wrong. Uh, and you, it, all, of these, all of these problems, these things that feel wrong, but actually break the rules of the platform, really get in the way of using the app. If I want to get out of here, uh, I try and tap on the settings, it doesn't work. I have to tap on this tiny little chevron over here. On iOS, that should be a button that's all combined, and so on. 
There are similar problems in the Android version as well. It just doesn't feel right for any of the platforms it's on. And um, this illustrates what I call Addy's maxim for cross-platform development. Develop once for every device and get a rubbish app for every device. I'm sorry, but it's true. To put this in perspective, if you develop an app that doesn't work the way people expect, uh, you're going to end up confusing them. You're going to end up frustrating them. Uh, this means you'll get a lot of one-star reviews. It means you'll end up with basically a bad, a bad uh, review next to your name on the store. Or even worse, next to your client's name on the store. And we've actually seen companies launch apps, hybrid apps like this, and then pull them a month later because they were doing more damage than good. This isn't just about can HTML access the hardware. That's certainly possible with these frameworks. It's more about what are the UI some approaches for each platform? What are the ways it's meant to work on that platform? You know, iOS is not Android, is not BlackBerry, is not Windows Phone. And it's almost like the difference between using a website in a browser, which is broadly similar on different platforms, and using a Java application on the desktop, which is always just wrong wherever you use it. It's the same kind of thing. It's significant that one of the most used iOS apps in the world, if not the most used, actually, I think, uh, used to be mostly HTML behind the scenes. Uh, they recently launched an update to their app, which made the, the main screens, the main timeline screens, uh, native. Didn't change the UI at all. You wouldn't know to look at it, but it became twice as fast. And they actually found they had twice the engagement, twice the content time spent by users, just by changing the speed, just by making it more responsive. It kind of shows another problem with these native apps. If you spend more time making it feel like a native app, sorry, from hybrid apps, making it feel like a native app, then um, just to try and get it nearer and nearer, you almost might as well just develop it native from the start. So functional apps from train times to Facebook to Flipboard should ideally be developed native for the platform. The rule is slightly different, however, for games. This is uh, Jelly Defense, one of my favorite uh, games for iPad. Uh, games tend to define their own UI, their own sort of heads-up displays. Uh, and whilst buttons should still behave like buttons, uh, you can take far more freedom in your UI design uh, for a game than you can for an app. Uh, this is actually developed in Unity, which is a cross-platform game development engine for uh, iOS, for Android, for most games consoles, and for Flash. Um, and for a lot of this stuff, even if you're doing for a single platform, this can be a better approach because you get a lot of stuff for free, a lot that's already optimized. Shaders don't need to work in a different way on different platforms. So this can save you time and be an even better approach. So why does all of this matter? Why should you care if your app feels right on a particular platform? There's a simple answer. And when you get down to it, it isn't really about the idea for an app. It's about the implementation. When someone says to me, I've got a good idea for an app, will you help me develop it? They might as well be saying, I've got this brilliant idea for a series of books. It's about this wizard, right? He's at school, and he goes to wizard school, and then has loads of adventures involving dragons and magic and stuff. Will you write them for me? Well, no, because that's the hard bit. That's the bit that we're all doing day in, day out, that takes bloody ages and is hard to do right. Best example I can give is this thing, which took me eight months. It was a lot of graft, a lot of risk, and didn't have it work. Um, but it was the app that I kind of wanted to make, and it did pretty well. And it's not perfect by any means, 
But a lot of time went into it, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's reasonably well-crafted. It's good enough, um, and it actually only has really two good ideas in it. One of them is the principle of making an app that tells you if your train's on time. The other one is that next train home, which we originally called, Have I Got Time for Another Pint?, that became next train home over time. That was one of the refinements of the idea that happened over time. But it's still really nicely implemented. And although they're pretty good ideas, it was the time that led to it selling 300,000 copies at 4.99 a pop. So that, I think, is the reason why I believe this so strongly. This man, this is Derek Sivers. He was the music industry entrepreneur who sold his website CD Baby for $22 million in 2008. He puts it far better than I can. He says, Ideas are worth nothing unless executed. They are just a multiplier. Execution is worth millions. Derek's principle is this. An idea is a multiplier. A weak idea may be a multiplier of one. Makes no difference. A good idea, a multiplier of ten. A brilliant idea, still only at most a multiplier of maybe 20. And it's the execution where the real value comes in. Weak execution, maybe $1,000. Good execution, 100000 Brilliant execution, then it really happens. Put the two together, brilliant idea, poor execution, not worth anything. Brilliant idea, great execution, then the idea is really worth something. And I think this is exactly the way to go. Uh, Sergey Brin, co-founder of Google, puts it thus. It's kind of a romantic notion that you're just going to have this one brilliant idea and then everything's going to be great. Coming up with an idea is the least important part of creating something great. The execution and delivery are what's key. Now, maybe I'm being a bit hard on PhoneGap and other cross-platform frameworks like it because they do have their uses. Where PhoneGap can be particularly useful uh, is in prototyping an idea. Uh, especially if you've got really good JavaScript, HTML, CSS skills already, and you want to try something out and put it in front of people without having to learn a whole new platform. Uh, you could mock your idea up for one platform using PhoneGap, give it to people to play with, see what they think, see if it's got value, see if it's worth spending the time on to develop it as a full native app. So what does this mean for HTML5 in the world of native apps? Does it have a place at all? Uh, well, actually, apps can and should make use of HTML, where it suits the task at hand. So, for example, this is Malcolm Tucker. Here you are reading Malcolm's emails. And this central view here, this is all HTML, because it's the best way to lay out that kind of view. Native wrapper around the top of it. And for that one view, we use a web view. Uh, similar principle in the Shakespeare apps we launched recently. This is our credits view. That credits view is HTML, because it's the best way to lay out that kind of thing. It's the best tool for the job in this case. Uh, another example is the QI app. We didn't use HTML for layout in the QI app, but we did have a whole bunch of content from these books that we wanted to convert. Uh, the, book, the content had inline images, it had headers, subheaders, uh, italics, and so on. And the more we thought about it, the more we thought, this sounds very familiar. This sounds an awful lot like HTML as a good markup language, and a, particularly a human-editable markup language to actually manage this content in the first place, to bring it all together. So we used HTML as the editing approach. It meant our content editor could preview it, check the structure was sound on the way through. And then we actually converted it to a native rendering format for the best text performance in the app. So this isn't a web view, but it was up until the point that we converted it. It was just the best tool for the job. 
having advocated native apps so strongly, I'd actually like to relent a little and suggest a hybrid approach, a more holistic approach. And what I mean by this is that if you're developing native apps, doing it the, the ideal way, that means developing an app for every platform. And that takes time, and it does cost money. So my suggestion is actually to create one native app for one platform first, try it out, see how people take it up, and to create a mobile web, a really good best-of-breed mobile web for everything else. So do native app for one platform, mobile web for the rest. And if what you're creating takes off, then develop further native apps. Uh, one of the good things about this is that you can actually support the mass range of devices. This is what HTML does best. It degrades gracefully, depending on what the device does. So use it for that, what it's good at, supporting the, the, the mass, and then do the native app to give the best experience as a trial. A big part of this is expectations. If someone downloads your product or service as an app, their expectations are a native, speedy, responsive feel. If you don't match those expectations because it feels just wrong on their platform, then you disappoint them. As soon as they switch to a browser, their expectations change. I don't mean they expect lower quality, not at all, but they're in a different mode, they're in a different world. They expect something that feels like the web feels. And if you create a really good mobile website, you'll actually delight them. You'll, they'll, they'll really like it, rather than feeling disappointed that it was wrapped up as a, an app that fell wrong somehow. Don't, however, make your mobile website behave like an app. Don't stick navigation bars across the top of it in a web browser, because that's just even more wrong. That just that will feel weird to people. Make a really good mobile website, and people will be delighted by it. It will exceed their expectations. So that's my suggestion. Native app for one platform, mobile web for the rest. So that's how you go about making it, or at least my recommendation. Hopefully by now, you know if it's a good idea. You know if it is indeed an idea for an app, and if so, how to go about making it. All that remains is for me to say good luck and thank you. <laughs>